I'll invite you to take your scriptures and open them to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look at both Revelation chapter 4 and 5 as we then celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Both of these are shorter chapters, and they center on God enthroned and the slain Lamb of God. And that song, the hymn that we just sang, is taken from uh, Revelation 5, probably 4 and 5 together. So when I ask you to turn to Revelation 4, we have just left the more easy to understand text of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And now we're going to start getting into the text that may confuse or frighten or even distress. And so we're going to keep our focus, which is Revelation's intention, on Christ, on the enthroned sovereign Lord and on the slain Lamb of God. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are a unified vision. It would be, if you've seen these canvas prints where it's got... Uh, it's, it's one picture separated on two canvas prints. For instance, you might have, you know, part of the plant and the garden on one canvas and then one of the branches stretching forth to the other canvas showing a flower. They go together. They present a single picture or a cityscape. You have half of Denver on one print, the other half on another. You hang them together. Without the one, it's incomplete. And that's where we're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5 together, this two-panel visionary painting which takes us into the very throne room of God. Chapter 4 is a collage of Old Testament images taken from Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah. And they're going to address what has been called the central and centering vision. It means once you see the center, it is going to by sort of gravitational pull center everything else around that. Here is a hint of what we're about to look at. The word throne is used 43 times from chapter 4 through the end of the book. The word throne is used 19 times in chapters 4 and 5 and 13 times in chapter 4 alone. So this is going to give you an idea of what the focus is. The word lamb, referring to Christ, is used 30 times. So this is sort of a twofold image, and, and, and this is what we're going to see this morning, is you have the sovereign enthroned God and the slain Lamb of God, and both are being worshipped as they are unified in their person, the one true God. Revelation chapter 4, which we'll call the theophany, which is an appearance of God, even though God is not described, but there's enough description given to where his majesty is clearly seen and then in revelation 5 it'll be a christophany which is an appearance of christ first of all the call to john look at verse 1 of chapter 4 after this i looked and behold the door standing open in heaven and the first voice which i had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. John is invited to see a realm he's never seen before. He may have gotten a small glimpse of it on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, but now there are three apocalyptic images. There's an open door 
leading to an open heaven and a loud voice as a trumpet. Look at verse 2. This is what he sees. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Notice John doesn't even use a personal pronoun. He's just talking about this in just majestic, sort of distant, reverent terms. Verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. You have these three translucent stones where John is trying to grasp what he sees about the one on the throne. Emerald describes the rainbow that encircles the throne. Have you ever seen a full circle rainbow? The only time I've ever seen that is when we visited Victoria Falls in Zambia and you had the, the water crashing down the face below and the, the, the water pressure at high water was forcing the water up and out and in and down, which made a rain jacket absolutely useless. But what you could see as the sun shined down on top of that mist that was moving everywhere. It was a complete circular rainbow. And it was right there. It was, I mean, no pot of gold. Where would the, where would the pot be? In the middle? I don't know. But it was right there, and you could you put, put a hiking stick out and touch it. And God's creation somehow and in some ways brings echoes of deity, doesn't it? I mean, even his creation proclaims who he is. Together with a loud crashing water and a full rainbow here, and this is still just God's creation. And you turn heavenward and you praise the one who made all things. Not only does he see this brilliance, these colors, this rainbow, maybe more like a, a halo around the throne. There are other people, there are attendants there. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. John's trying to describe what he sees. The the 24 elders are most likely human, since angels are not referred to as elders, and they seem to represent the people of God. The number being taken either from the 24 priestly orders instituted by David or from the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles, the apostles, which are connected to 12 foundations later on in this book. But it seems as though you have human representatives serving a priestly and a royal function. They're clothed in white, that purity, that that shared righteousness by divine grace. And victory, they have crowns on their heads. Remember the letters to the churches. Everyone ended with, he who conquers, he who conquers, he who conquers. And the question is, when you get to the end of these letters, is will God's people conquer? Will they make it? And the rest of the book is God's answer to us. And the answer is yes. God's people will persevere And so you have these 24 elders, representatives, serving both the priestly, white, pure, and royal, golden crowns. They're serving in that capacity. 
And now what John sees, what he notices, so he hears the voice, he sees this enthroned God, and now he sees concentric circles. Let me just, you've got seven flaming torches, four living creatures, and then 24 elders. So as John is invited up into heaven to see things where the future is no longer a secret, what John first sees is not a description of events like this timeline. He sees the object of worship. He sees the true Lord. He sees the, the one who really is someone. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Have you ever been close to a lightning strike i'm not just talking flash boom but have you ever been hit by the splinters of a struck tree some there may be someone here who has actually taken that secondary bolt that often comes back up out of the ground about a hundred yards away we were around the lake as a family picnicking and a storm moved in over that lake unexpected and we're standing under this pavilion on a concrete slab not a great place to be during a lightning storm. And we were hearing flash boom, flash boom, and you could just feel it shake your insides. And then finally one hit a tree not far from the pavilion, and the splinters were thrown up onto the concrete slab, and secondary bolts had punctured one of the tires on the vehicles. And I'm going to say at that point, you are very focused, and you are gripped by fear. And you're not taking comfort in the fact that lightning doesn't strike the same place twice. That's no comfort at that point. When you have just been confronted and felt the shrapnel of a pine tree, you're sitting there in intense fear. From God's throne, flashes of lightning, sort of uh, an echo of Mount Sinai where the law is given and rumblings and peals of thunder. And then he sees these seven torches, as he describes, which are the seven spirits of God, the complete work, the perfection of the Holy Spirit of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, you're going to find this language. So it's not a sea of glass. But John's trying to describe something he's never seen before. He sees this great expanse. And he starts to use terms that he's familiar with. And he sees... There was, as it were, a sea of glass. The emphasis on, is on expanse. So even though John is called up into heaven, there's this crystal barrier, if you would, that separates this unique God from his creation. There's a transcendence. There is a holiness that separates him from his creation. Remember, that's what John saw in Revelation 1. Remember, John had walked with Jesus for three and a half years and now he sees this vision and he falls down as a dead man and Jesus puts his hands on him and he says don't fear I'm the first and the last I died and now I am alive and I have the keys to Hades and death and see now John John is seeing something as it were of that same vision and now he's going to describe something else look at the latter part of verse 6 
and around the throne on each side of the throne. So, okay, there's this huge expanse. And so if you would, at a distance, he sees four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. He didn't say it's a lion, but like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. That is staggering. I mean, you just you read that and you're just... You, you go from the throne where there's not a clear description of who's on the throne, just sort of the surrounding brilliance in context. But he does now describe created beings. These are created beings. If one of those appeared on the platform, some of you may be tempted to bow down and worship it. And that would be inappropriate. That would be blasphemous. But the fact is there are creatures that you and I have never seen. Like in Ezekiel, you have a wheel inside, a wheel and full of eyes all around. And it's and it's alive. And now you have these beasts that are explained and they actually serve a purpose. But the fact is we need to step back for a second and say this is an awesome God who creates things like this. These are probably heavenly creatures. So you have the 24 elders representing humanity and you have probably these heavenly creatures representing all of creation. And they are awesome, but they are created and that should cause a holy hush upon us when we gather and we sing to this person. And when we have the privilege to go out this week and serve this person. And it should help us evaluate the other gods, these fringe deities that we have allowed to crowd out our life when we get a glimpse of this person. And by the way, these creatures, they're worshiping the one on the throne. More important than the identity and appearance of the creatures and elders is their activity. Look at, look at verse 8, the second part. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He's the eternal one and he's the creator. Keep reading. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne. That's the object of worship. Who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying... Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Okay, why are they worshiping him? For you created all things. I mean, even those beasts that are around this throne, you created them. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Holy, holy, holy. There is one who is unique, one who is distinct, one who is separate from everything else. So separate, there is, as it were, a sea of crystal separating his transcendence from his created beings. 
The worship of God is the center of everything. And do you know it's the center even when we don't see it or participate in it or cherish it? It is still the center. See, you, you, it's as if the curtain has been pulled back and you see the true center, the true reality. And that's going on right now, even if we are worshiping lesser things. The application as we come right out from the messages to the seven churches is that only God is worthy to receive what others, especially powerful leaders like Rome and its emperor, demand to have for themselves. There is one true sovereign in heaven. It's not Rome or the emperor. It's not Washington or the president. It's not Russia or the president of the Russian Federation. It's not China or their paramount leader of the Republic of China. It is Yahweh enthroned in majestic brilliance. Again, there is no literal description of God in this chapter. As John says earlier in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. But there is enough to see his majestic power. And that leads us to a question as we come to the end of this chapter, and that is, is God the center of your life? He is the center of all creation. He is the object of true worship. But is he the center of our life, our thoughts, our affections, our emotions, our reactions? our plans, our relationships, and our life. And when it's not, like even this morning, some of us may come face-to-face, just within, within ten minutes of looking at Revelation 5, come face-to-face with the brilliance and the glory of the one true God, and we realize, no, it hasn't always been, even this week. This last week it hasn't been. One of, the, one of the joys of gathering together and worshiping like this is we remember who we are in light of who He is. And that's why there is confession. And then we remember who God really is and that's why there's adoration and thanksgiving. And then we realize we need to realign our life, our responses, our affections, our relationships to Him. And that's why there is dedication at the end. These are all sort of a movement or a rhythm of worship. Is God the center? Is the, the object of worship not just on a time slot on Sunday, but all day, every day, every week, every month throughout the year? And so we move from an appearance of God now to an appearance of Christ. Look at Revelation chapter 5. There's a combination of images. This is the second panel of this heavenly portrait. And, and it provides a stunning contrast, or you might even say a paradox. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. Okay, so we're, the reason we're covering these together fast is so that we can actually value and then respond to this contrast. Chapter 5, verse 1. There's a double-sided scroll. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne... A scroll written within and on the back. By the way, this would be unusual for an older document. This would be unusual in John's day to see a scroll that is written on the front and on the back. And what that most likely suggests is this is a full judgment that is about to 
unfold and humanity cannot add to it. It's already complete. It's a scroll in fullness. In God's hand is a scroll sealed up with seven wax seals, but there seems to be no one to open the scroll. And so John responds, look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? By the way, he said that probably for John's sake so he could write it down and we could ask that question again right now. So let me ask you, who is worthy? I mean, you just came from the heavenly throne room of God where there is lightning and peals of thunder and brilliance and incredible creatures and 24 elders. And these elders are throwing their crowns down and there sits God with a scroll with seven wax seals and an angel says, who's worthy to open it? Are you worthy? Is your favorite teacher or preacher worthy to open it? Your favorite author? Who is worthy? A missionary? An evangelist? The most powerful king of the earth? Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? The answer is no one. Verse 4, this is John's emotional response to that because he knows that something very special is written inside that scroll. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, one of the 24, and this is what John hears, weep no more. Behold, now the elder is going to use two classic Old Testament descriptions for Messiah. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So the one who is worthy is identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. That's what John hears. Now, what does John expect to see then? A lion-like king? A Davidic-like warrior king? I think that's what he expects to see. Here's the contrast. Here's the paradox. What John expects he will see is a conquering, powerful, lion-type king. But look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, this is what he sees, a lamb standing. Did you expect that? I mean, after the heavenly scene we just came through and the scroll and the seven seals and no one in heaven or on earth is worthy to open the scroll and look at its contents. But there is one and he's a lion like king and he's a Davidic like warrior king. So I turned and I see a lamb. I see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, horns are descriptive of power, seven completeness, completely omnipotent, this lamb with seven eyes, again, seven completion or perfection, eyes, the omnipotence, complete 
and perfect power and knowledge. I see a lamb as, as though it were slain. Think sacrifice. Think without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. With complete and perfect power and knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This picture of Jesus is crucial for understanding the book of Revelation. For understanding all the judgments that are about to flow in chapter 6 on. The picture is of a conquering king who overcame his enemies by loving them and dying for them. By the way, when you hear, when you hear enemy, don't automatically think Arab Muslim or white supremacist or Nepali Buddhist or secular atheist. Think yourself. Because we are not any better, wiser, smarter, more nobler, or somehow we're able to navigate our way to God where others couldn't. The Apostle Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. See, it's not because you have more knowledge than other people. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are the ones that were hostile to God. We were enemies of God. We were distanced from God. It is He who rescued us, not we who saved ourselves. And that brings all this into focus. The enthroned God and the slain Lamb are at the center of worship. God has overcome the world not through a show of force, but through a suffering Messiah. This lamb sort of again brings these old, an Old Testament collage of images back from the Passover lamb of Exodus 12 to the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. Even John's uh, confession in John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist said, The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not a surprise picture. This is exactly what was prophesied and what, the, and, and what the last Old Testament prophet declared about Jesus. That He is the Lamb of God. And so chapter 5 focuses on the power of Christ's death. A death that resulted in the redeeming or the ransoming of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Look at verse 10. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll. Now, what is in the scroll? Some have said it's the scriptures. Uh, others have suggested it is the book of life. Those don't seem to be what is contained inside because those have already been revealed. Uh, it is most likely the eschatological plan of God to judge and save the world. A plan that is about to unfold in John's day. And when he had taken the scroll, now look what happens. If you can envision in your mind, because we have enough details of what this scene looks like. The lamb, who appeared as though he was slain, takes the scroll. Then the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before who? Okay, in chapter 5, they fell down and worshipped who? This one on the throne. But the lamb is distinct. 
And now the lamb goes and he takes out of the right hand this scroll and these same creatures and this human representatives fall down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you. This is why he's worthy. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So you have this imputed righteousness of God, probably symbolized by the white robes of these elders. You have this sort of royal function, this priesthood, this kingdom symbolized by these golden crowns on their heads and they are saying the lamb is worthy because he fulfilled his messianic role the lamb of god is the hope of the world now look at the response of an angelic choir in verse 11 then i looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels see there were more creatures present than the ones he initially identified I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. And this is what the angelic choir in heaven is singing. So if, if, if you ever think we sing too much about Jesus Christ or too much about shed blood, this is what the, the angelic choir is singing. Are you ready? Look at verse 12. Saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How we worship here should be a glimpse of what we have seen in Revelation 4 and 5. The object of our worship, the reverence of our worship, the specificness of what Jesus Christ has done. And that leads into then not just Worship by an angelic choir, but universal worship of God and the Lamb. Look at verse 13. We only have two more verses. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. God enthroned and a slaughtered sacrificial lamb is the central and centering vision. Eugene Peterson writes, Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. So John's glimpse of the vision of God and the vision of Christ becomes a call to worship. Chapter 4 celebrates the God of creation. Chapter 5 celebrates the God of redemption who has triumphed. Chapter 4 highlights the sovereignty and majesty of God. 
Chapter 5 highlights the Lamb of God who was slain and the worship shifts to both. And then the final scene, the last two verses that we just read, is a scene of worship that celebrates the unity of the enthroned God and the slain Lamb. That's the object of worship. And what is our response? A hymn that we already sang, one that is taken out of this twofold painting. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. To God and to the Lamb I will sing, who is the great I am. While millions join the theme, I will sing. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on. I'll sing His love for me. And through eternity, I'll sing on. To God and to the Lamb. Let's pray.